Please keep your Bibles open, though, at that passage there in Acts chapter 21. Uh, There's quite a lot in there, and I've kind of had to cut a whole section out to make sure that we do focus on what I think is the main thing here, but we are going to have question time later on, so if you have any questions about stuff that I do say or that I don't cover, then feel free to ask that in question time. Let's pray, though, shall we? Heavenly Father, please help us to be people who, in our desire to follow Jesus, that we do it the way that Jesus actually wants us to, that he says that we should, that we are genuine and, and sincere followers of Jesus and that you'll be changing us all the more to be like that. And we ask that in Jesus' name. Amen. Sometimes it seems to me that when we're doing something and that something goes badly, it can be a helpful lesson to teach us maybe that wasn't a good thing to be doing and I shouldn't do that anymore. Like what happened to me one time when I was a teenager, me and my friends found this great big tractor tyre inner tube and we decided to pump it up and that it would be fun to take turns rolling down a hill inside it. And so we did. And so it was a lot of fun to begin with because we're only going from about halfway up the hill. But then I decided, now hang on, I'm going to go to the top of the hill and do this properly. And that's when things kind of went a bit pear-shaped. The top of the hill was not only further up, as you can imagine, but steeper as well. And so by the time I got halfway down to where we were taking off previously, I was going much faster than we had been previously. And not only was I going faster, I'd started to develop a bounce as I was going. So I was flying down this hill and bouncing faster and faster and higher and higher until I was bouncing. It felt like I was bouncing two metres off the ground, but I don't know. And really going fast until finally one huge bounce and I flung out of the the tyre in a tube, did a somersault and crashed, landed on the ground, thankfully on my backside and not on my head because it could have been much worse, but I couldn't walk properly for a week. And I thought, well, I am never going to do that again. That was clearly a bad idea. I'm never going to do that again, and I have never done that again. Now, I don't suppose you've done something like that exactly, but maybe you have done something that's gone badly and you thought, well, let's not do that again, shall we? It can be a helpful test sometimes when things go badly to test whether something is a good idea or not and whether we should do it again. But not always. I remember one other time, uh, a number of years ago, I decided to have a chat with a Christian friend of mine because I was concerned about how things were going in his faith and some of the life choices that he was making, and so I decided that I should have a chat with him about that. And I tell you, I was nervous about it. I was worried that it might go badly, and it did go badly. Our friendship suffered as a result He didn't really take my advice, and that was really hard. So what should I do with that experience? It worked out badly. Does that mean that I should never do that sort of thing again? Because that's instinctively what I want to do after that experience. I never want to do that again. It is tempting to always use how something might turn out as the way to decide whether that's a good idea or not. If it's going to work out badly... Don't do it. That sounds like pretty good logic, right? And perhaps maybe even sometimes we take that a little bit further or or spiritualise that and say, well, if a certain decision or action is going to cause me difficulty, then God must be saying that's not a good thing for you to do. You shouldn't do that. And on the other side, if it's working out well, then that's God saying, yes, that's thumbs up. That's a good thing to do. 
Maybe we wouldn't put it quite like that, but I do wonder if we sometimes operate with that kind of thinking, leaning away from the things that are difficult as the guide for whether we should do something or not. And so with that in mind, the question that I want to ask this evening as we look again at Acts 21 together is how should we think about difficulty and suffering in the life of faith in relation to the choices that we make and how we live. All right, how should we think about difficulty and suffering in relation to the choices that we make? That's what we're going to be asking and looking at today. And the first kind of thing that we're going to see in this chapter is it's, it shows us Paul's journey to Jerusalem. And as he's going, he's knowingly walking into suffering. So if you could put that first point up there, that'd be great. Thank you. So Paul's journey to Jerusalem and he's knowingly walking into suffering. So if you flick back a page into chapter 19, verse 21, we are told that Paul decided to go to Jerusalem. That's where he's heading. In fact, he was so eager to get to Jerusalem that he rearranged his travel plan so that he get there even more quickly, as quickly as possible. Now, we're not told why he wanted to get to Jerusalem, Romans chapter 15 said he had a, a financial gift of, of uh, aid, support for the churches in Jerusalem, so that might be part of why he wanted to go there. But whatever the reason, he was determined to get to Jerusalem. But here's the thing that I think we notice in our chapter today, is that as, as determined as Paul was to get to Jerusalem, his friends were just as determined for him to not go to Jerusalem. Did you notice that as, as the Bible was, was being read just now? Have a look at how earnestly the people around Paul are trying to dissuade him from going to Jerusalem. It happens twice, at, at two different locations, in Tyre and then again in Caesarea. Firstly in Tyre, have a look at verse 4, the second half of verse 4 with me. It says, through the Spirit, they urged Paul not to go to Jerusalem, the very place that he's trying to go to. They urged him not to go. That's in Tyre, and again in Caesarea, down in verse 12, and or a bit before verse 12, verse 10 and 11. The prophet Agabus comes to Paul and has that kind of dramatized enactment of what's going to happen if he gets there. He ties himself with Paul's belt, and he says, the person whose belt this is, is going to be tied up and handed over to the Gentiles, to the, to the Romans. And in both cases, they urge Paul not to go to Jerusalem. This is what's going to happen if you go there, Paul, so don't go there. I mean, that sounds like pretty sound logic, doesn't it? You're going to be sent to prison if you go there, so don't go. It's going to work out badly for you. And surely the most significant part in all of this is it's the Holy Spirit who is telling them what's going to happen. They're not just guessing about what will happen in Jerusalem. This is a word from God. I mean, that sounds significant, right? The Holy Spirit says. But Paul will not be dissuaded. Have a look at what he says to them in reply in verse 13. Then Paul answered, Why are you weeping and breaking my heart? I'm ready not only to be bound, but also to die in Jerusalem for the name of of the Lord Jesus. See, I hear what you're saying, Paul says. I hear the prophecy, but I'm going anyway. I mean, that's remarkable, don't you think? Surely that's got to raise our interest about what is going on here. It just seems so bizarre that Paul would hear this warning 
and ignore it. And I guess the first and most obvious question that I have coming out of this is, was Paul disobeying God at this point? Was he disobeying a direct instruction of the Holy Spirit? Well, the answer to that, I think, is no. I don't think he was. You see, the Holy Spirit was telling them that if Paul goes to Jerusalem, that's what will happen. He will be imprisoned. This is going to end up badly for Paul. It's a statement of fact, a prediction of the future. But it's not a command. It's not a don't-go command. It's entirely understandable that his friends take that information and go, therefore, don't go. But this is not a command from God, from the Holy Spirit, to not go to Jerusalem. And it's not actually new information for Paul either. He's heard this before, back in chapter 20. And he actually has more information than they do. Have a look at me, a look at chapter 20, verse 22 with me. It'll appear on the screen there. Chapter 20, verse 22. And now, compelled by the Spirit, I am going to Jerusalem. Not knowing what will happen to me there, I only know that in every city the Holy Spirit warns me that prison and hardship are facing me. See, Paul had already been warned by the Holy Spirit that prison and hardship are facing him in Jerusalem. In fact, in every city he's had that warning. And yet at the same time, the Holy Spirit is also compelling him to go to Jerusalem anyway. See, what's happened is for Paul's friends, they've done the maths, but they've come up with the wrong answer because they don't have all the information. They've got the message, you will suffer if you go to Jerusalem, but they think that equals, therefore don't go to Jerusalem. But that's only half the story. The full story is God wants him to go to Jerusalem anyway. And that's what Paul cares about. He knows that su- he knows the suffering he'll face there. He's been warned about it in every city, but he also knows something else. God wants him to go there regardless. And Paul has kind of weighed that up. He's weighed up the alternatives, go, don't go, suffering, not suffering, and he has come up with his conclusion. You know those old-fashioned scales, like the, the balancing scales, where you put something on this side and weigh it against something on this side? We've all seen those even if we haven't used them. And you've got a weight, a known weight on this side, and the thing that you're weighing over here, some gold or silver or, or goods, and... You use it to work out the value of the thing that you've got over here, if you know the weight of what you've got over here. And Paul has weighed the value of his own life in these scales. He's weighed his life against God's command, and he's come up with the answer. What does he consider his life is worth when weighed in the balance? Have a look at the rest of the quote there in verse 24. This is what he thinks his life is worth. However, I consider my life worth nothing to me. If only I may finish the race and complete the task the Lord Jesus has given me, the task of testifying to the gospel of God's grace. He says, my life is worth nothing compared to doing what God has told me to do. And in this case, that includes going to Jerusalem. That's why he says to them in verse 13, I am ready to be bound but also to die in Jerusalem for the name of the Lord Jesus. He's weighed things up 
He's counted the cost. And for him, it's a no-brainer. He's going to go to Jerusalem anyway. That's Paul's journey to Jerusalem. He's knowingly walking into suffering. And it occurs to me as we move on to our next point that as Paul journeys to Jerusalem, knowingly walking into suffering, that he's actually walking in the footsteps of Jesus. There are actually some some, some significant parallels, comparisons between Paul's determined journey to Jerusalem and Jesus' determined journey to Jerusalem not that many years before. So in Luke's first book, this Acts is Luke's second book, his first book is Luke's Gospel, and in Luke's Gospel he records Jesus' journey to Jerusalem. And it begins like this in Luke chapter 19, verse 51. We hear of Jesus' determination to go there. It says, As the time approached for Jesus to be taken up to heaven, he resolutely set out for Jerusalem. He was determined to go there, like Paul was. And the people around him, his disciples, his followers, were both shocked and terrified because they knew that the people in Jerusalem were trying to kill him. And at one point, his disciples also tried to dissuade Jesus from going to Jerusalem. They said, they're trying to kill you there, Jesus. Don't go. But he also went anyway. And we know how that worked out, don't we? They did kill him. And Jesus knowingly walked towards that. And now here in Acts 21, Paul is doing exactly the same thing. And I thought that's worth reflecting on. What's going on there? I think we're familiar with the idea of Jesus knowingly walking into suffering at Jerusalem. We know that suffering was part of his mission, even though his his followers didn't know it. We know that his suffering and death was for the salvation of the world. We're familiar with that. But why Paul? Why did he need to walk into suffering? Well, part of the answer to that, I think, is we don't know. We can follow the story to see how it works out. Through Paul's suffering, we can see God working for good. And so we see in the rest of this chapter and ongoing that things play out exactly like the prophet Agabus said that they would, that Paul was seized by the Jews in Jerusalem, that he was handed over to the Gentiles, the Romans, that he was beaten and imprisoned. He spent years in prison, unjustly accused. He's shipwrecked during prisoner transport to Rome. They nearly drown. And it ends, the whole story ends at the end of Acts Acts chapter 28 with Paul in prison. All because he refused to heed this warning to not go to Jerusalem. But at the same time, we also see God working through that situation for good. In fact, the book of Acts, as I said, while it ends with Paul in prison in Rome, he's also free to speak to anyone he wants to about Jesus. Paul is in chains, but the message of Jesus is not. The gospel is unchained and free to spread from Rome, and it does. But at this point, Paul doesn't know any of that. He doesn't know how it's going to work out. All he knows is what God has told him to do, that God has told him to go to Jerusalem, to walk into a situation that he has forewarned him will be difficult, that suffering and hardship is waiting for him. And in doing that, Jesus is, sorry, Paul is walking in the footsteps of Jesus. 
And here's where this really, I think, lands for us because Jesus says that all of us, if we want to follow Jesus, must walk in his footsteps too, must count the cost of following Jesus ourselves. So let me take you again back to Luke's Gospel where Jesus first mentions what he knows is waiting for him in Jerusalem. He says this in Luke chapter 9 and verse 22. And he said, The Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders, the chief priests and the teachers of the law, and he must be killed and on the third day be raised to life. Then he said to them, Whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves and take up their cross daily and follow me. Whoever wants to follow Jesus must walk as Jesus did. Now, we don't literally walk in the footsteps of Jesus to Jerusalem, but if we want to follow him, then we have to recognise what that involves, that it involves taking up our cross daily and following him. And what that means is, and here's the point that I'm making here tonight really, is that means not running away from things that are difficult or that might cause me suffering if that's what God wants me to do. Because I do wonder if sometimes we do our maths the same way that Paul's friends did the maths, that is, with only half the equation. That is, if this is going to be difficult, then don't do it. Or even, as I said, spiritualizing it and saying, well, if things are getting hard, that must be God's sign to me to say, well, you shouldn't be doing that. You should stop doing that. And so we use that kind of pleasure or pain as the test for what God wants me to do. And we lean towards the pleasure and away from the pain. But as I said, that's only half the equation. The other half of the equation is, what does God actually want me to do? What has God actually told me that he wants for me? For Paul, in this moment, it was to go to Jerusalem. What is it for us? Well, thankfully, we're not left guessing because we are told what God wants for us, what his will for us is, and it says this in 1 Thessalonians 4 verse 3. It is God's will that you should be sanctified. That is, that you should be holy that you should be godly, that you should live the way that Jesus lived and love the way that Jesus loved, costly, generous, self-sacrificial love, and that you should get rid of the things in your life that God doesn't love, that doesn't fit with the holiness that God wants for you, the sexual immorality, the greed, the pride, the anger, the caring more about what other people think than what God thinks. That's what God wants for you. We spend so much time asking that question, what is God's will for my life? That is it. That is his will for each one of us. And he also tells us that that's not going to be easy. In fact, he says this in 2 Timothy, everyone who wants to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. The life of following Jesus includes suffering and hardship. Like Jesus said, whoever wants to be my disciple must take up their cross daily and follow me. That's what Jesus says to us. And so I thought it might be worthwhile now just to finish to spend some time thinking of some examples of actually what this might look like. Because our cultural moment, I think, is very much about minimising 
pain and maximising pleasure. But that's not the message of following Jesus. That's not what following him looks like. Now, that doesn't mean that we need to go looking for suffering, but I suspect there aren't many of us who are actively pursuing that. I suspect the temptation for most of us is to avoid hardship and difficulty and to use that as the reason to not do something or to change what I'm doing or to let that determine what I think God wants for me. So let me give some examples. We're all told that we should love others the way that God has loved us. That is, sacrificing what is good for me for the sake of what is good for others. And husbands in particular are told that we should love our wives in this way, to lay down our lives for our wives, just like Jesus laid down his life for us. So let me speak to husbands for a moment about this and prospective husbands. Husbands, are you going to, what are you going to do when you discover that God's command in marriage is difficult? Because it is difficult. But for some reason, I keep forgetting that laying down my life for the good of someone else, even for the good of someone that I love and have promised to love, is not always going to be easy, that it is going to be hard. What are you going to do when it gets hard and you discover that it's hard? Are you going to say, well, God obviously didn't really mean it like that, surely. I mean, this is, this is a bit silly, surely. Maybe I should just back up on the laying down my life bit and look after number one a little bit more. Then things might work out a bit better for me. Is that what I'm going to do? Or will we keep walking towards what I know is going to cost me? What I know is going to be hard, loving our wives, even at cost to ourselves, because that's how Jesus wants husbands to live. Or another example, the Christian couple who are dating and are resisting the temptation to sleep together before they're married and finding that hard. And not only finding that hard within themselves, but also feeling pressure from the people around them, being ridiculed by their friends. What are you doing? That's so old-fashioned. That's so repressive. Or the Christian who is struggling with same-sex attraction. And again, not only struggling within themselves, but also now being told that they're harming themselves by even resisting. As you know, it's currently World Pride Month, and the overwhelming pressure, we had Mardi Gras last night, the overwhelming pressure for in this cultural moment, for people in that situation in particular, is to give in to that struggle. And it's making it so much harder for Christians who are struggling like that. That's what's unhelpful. But those who are persevering in the struggle and resisting the temptation, and if this is you, then let me say this to you, you are following in the footsteps of Jesus against the pressure of the world around you. And surely the rest of us should stand with our brothers and sisters and encourage them and affirm them in that struggle. But if we do, encourage them to resist temptation and affirm the goodness of their struggle, we're going to be told that we're harming them and we will face persecution. You may be aware that the laws in Victoria around this kind of thing at the moment are now being considered in New South Wales where it could end up being outlawed to even pray for our friends who are struggling in this way, 
who want to be faithful to Jesus in this area of their life. Pray that that doesn't happen. But if it does, what will you do when standing with those who want to live for Jesus is going to cause you trouble? Or another example, the classic one, I suppose, telling people about Jesus, simply telling them about Jesus. Am I willing to stand up and say, yes, I'm a follower of Jesus in the playground, in the workplace, with my friends and family, and and be willing to talk about it and, and to invite other people to be a follower of Jesus too, even when I know that's unpopular and when it will make me unpopular, even when I'd much rather just sit down and be quiet and let it all just pass over. Now, those are just some examples, but I'm sure you can think of others in your situation of where walking the way that Jesus walked is not necessarily going to be the easy option. Because it is so tempting to think that the difficult option in the life of faith is not the right option, it's the wrong one. If it's going to work out badly, surely that's not what God wants for me. That's not the way he wants me to go. Like I felt after I had that conversation with my friend all those years ago that I mentioned at the beginning, that it didn't go well. Although since then, many years later, things have turned around. In our friendship and in his faith, we are much closer than we were before and his faith is going much better than it was before after many years of it going badly. See, we don't know the big picture of what God is doing through our actions, through our choices that we make, through our words. But we do know the way that God wants us to walk, the way that he wants us to live, the way that Jesus did. Not avoiding suffering for the easy life, but taking up our cross and following Jesus. Let's pray that we will. Heavenly Father, you know the particular things in our life where we are tempted to shy away from what is difficult and yet is the thing that you have called us to do, some aspect of godliness, of holiness, of sanctification that you know we need to do but is difficult for us, some choices that we need to make. And so, Father, help us to hear the truth in the words of what following Jesus really involves, taking up our cross and following him. And help us, Father, to know the goodness of the life that he has called us to as a result, both in this life but also in the eternal life to come. And we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.